Father, uh, take us deeper into the story, the song of your salvation, as we just sang, so that we can sing back the song that the angels sing of your glory and work in the world. We pray that this text would communicate that, this passage of Scripture. We pray that your Spirit would um, work through your Word. It has power. We pray that it would be unleashed in our hearts and minds. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So uh, the song, one of the most beloved Christian hymns is the song Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace. And it sings of the sweetness of God's grace to sinners like us. And we hear that phrase, amazing grace, and it can almost become trite. I mean, you know, we, I talk about, like, there's pizza that I think is amazing. There's ball games that are amazing to watch. Amazing finishes. Is God's grace amazing in those sorts of ways? No, it's, it's far greater than that. And one of, one of the challenges, is, as I see it, for, for me as a, as a pastor, is to help us together, and for myself as well, to see the grace of God as amazing, something that energizes every fiber of our being. It fuels us, our activity in the world, and at the same time transforms us. That's how amazing grace is. It's literally changing the world. When C.S. Lewis was asked, what, what makes Christianity different from all the other religions? Without hesitation, he replied, Grace. Grace. That's the Christian distinctive. We're saved by grace. We grow in grace. And as Paul says in, in Ephesians chapter 2, what God is going to do in the future is lavish His grace upon grace upon grace toward us for ages to come. That's, it's grace from beginning to end. It's all about grace. So, so grace is really important. Now, what exactly is grace? What are we even referring to? Um, grace is God's kindness, His favor. The Hebrew word grace refers to a person in position of power and without need, extending kindness and generosity to someone with no power and in desperate need. Right? And so, in other words, you're extending it, but you're not getting anything back. The powerless can't give you anything. You're not scratching their back so that they can scratch your back later on. It's just benevolent generosity and favor toward another. That's what grace is. Now, some Christians think of grace, though, it's, it's favoring God's kindness, but it's sort of like a little pixie dust that God sprinkles from heaven on us in times of need. Or Michael Reeves says, he, he calls it like a spiritual red bull. You know, you're, you're grinding out the Christian life, you're, you're going to church, you're teaching Sunday school, you're, you're uh, singing songs, you're, ready, you're doing family devotions with your family, you're doing the hard work, the heavy lifting of the Christian life. And God drops down a little spirit. He gives his grace, like a, spirit, a little 12-ounce spiritual Red Bull that you chug down, crush it, throw it to the side, and you keep going through those disciplines. It's God's grace. It's like you're almost over the hump, and God's grace just kind of lifts you up over. That's not God's grace. It is, God's grace is there 
from beginning to end. You're not just pedaling up a hill and you need a little pick-me-up to get you over. You're dead on the side of the road and God's grace awakens you. And then you begin to ride. And God's grace is there all along. That's, that's what we're talking about. And, it's, and His grace is not dispensed in little grace packs that He throws down from heaven to us when we need it. it ref, God's grace refers to His overall disposition to humanity and to the world. Now, I can talk about grace all day long and try to define it and proposition it and put it forward. Like, this is grace. But really what we need is to um, to, to have an understanding of grace, get from our head to our hearts, we need to see grace enfleshed. We need to see grace embodied in story. And that's what we're going to see this morning in this story. Because that's going to help this idea of grace drop down into our hearts, and our hearts are the control center of our lives. Grace in, grace out. We want to live well. We've got to have this concept of God's favor and grace to us drop down into our hearts so that it actually informs how, how we live and act and, and live in the world. So we're going to see uh, grace in Jacob's life. I mean, think about this. Moses, 400 plus years later, 500 years later, is writing the story of his family history here in the book of Genesis. His, his fathers, Father Abraham, Father Jacob, Father Isaac. And here, here we have this story. There's going to be a lot of focus on Jacob. If you're writing the story of your family, are you, aren't you going to kind of keep those skeletons in the closet? Are you going to present the worst moments of your fathers? Or are you going to present their shining moments? The, the scriptures are so um, willing to present the, the fallenness and failures of these father, of Abraham. And now we're going to see Jacob here in just a moment. And so the question is, why would they do that? How can they do that? They have some editorial ability to kind of edit some things and keep certain things out. No, they're in the story for a very important reason. Because the story is not primarily about Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. The story is primarily about God and his grace towards humanity. His favor toward a people. That's what the story is about. One, one commentator says this about the Jacob story. He says, Jacob's reprehensible features are strongly brought out in this Jacob story. Why, why, is that the, why is that done? This is done in order to show that the divine grace is not the reward for, but the source of noble traits. Grace overcoming human sin and transforming human nature is the key note of the revelation in the Jacob story. Grace overcoming human sin and transforming human nature, that's the key note of the Jacob story. And it's also the keynote of all of God's revelation. Her Her Herman Bovink, one theologian, says, grace is the content of all of God's revelation. All of it. It's not law. It's gospel. It's not demands, but promise. That's the core of revelation. God's grace. 
So Lewis is right. C.S. Lewis, grace is the Christian distinctive. And that is evident in this Jacob story. And I, I want us to kind of consider a couple of things in this, as we consider this passage of Scripture. The need for grace and the fact that God's grace is governing the whole situation. God's grace is governing this little sibling moment that we read about here in this passage. So let's go ahead and look at it. Look at verse 27. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skillful hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. And we see right here that there's favoritism that begins to kind of seep into the family. Look at verse 28. Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. Esau was a good hunter, and Esau brought home really good smoked venison that Isaac's belly loved, and so Isaac loved Esau. And then it says, Rebekah loved Jacob. And we're not given any detail on why Rebekah's love landed on Jacob, but it's safe to say that there's favoritism going on. And here's the thing. Favoritism is going to lead to massive problems in this family. Massive problems. In fact, Jacob will favor a son, and it will, it will lead to him basically losing that son for years and years and years. And was it not for God's grace, he would never have even been reunited with that son. Favoritism leads to all sorts of problems, and it does here. Now, let's, let's look at verse 29. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in from the field, and he was exhausted. Now, there's a picture emerging in your minds, right? Esau's outside all day. He's, he's chopping firewood. He's hunting bear. He's, just, he's a man of the field. He's a man's man. And then we've got Jacob, and he's described as a, as a quiet man. He's dwelling in tents. He's probably building little model chariots inside. And, and then he's cooking, uh, he's cooking meals. He's got his apron strapped around. He's cooking in the kitchen and doing all sorts of inside stuff. Now, look, look, that's not exactly what's going on here, even though it reads that way. Uh, Jacob is described as dwelling in tents. If you look at Genesis 4.20, those who dwell in tents are those who are involved in animal husbandry. Uh, you might think of Jacob more like a rancher. Jacob is, is doing a, a more sophisticated form of food production than Esau, who's doing the more primitive, like just hunting in a field. Jacob's raising animals. And, 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 pro, and, and then you have the word, he, it describes him as quiet. Now that word is used to describe someone who is complete in other parts of Scripture, so that may not be the best translation. Um, now, oftentimes it's used to describe someone who is complete in the sense that they're morally upright. Morally upright. Morally, that's not Jacob. Okay, that, that's, to me that is pretty clear from the text. That's not Jacob. So what does it mean? Maybe it means that he's complete in the sense that Jacob is refined. He's more sophisticated. He's more cultured. Some have even said that what this word is describing is that perhaps he's, it's describing a, Jacob as a very organized, detail-oriented, administratively savvy person. Perhaps. Um, now, one of the questions is, well, why is he cooking food? 
Wouldn't that be the work of the servants? They have all kinds of servants in this family. Wouldn't that be the work of the servants? And the answer is yes, probably would be. But this is likely not home base. This is a shepherd's camp that they're in. That Esau is out in the field hunting and Jacob is out on an outpost with his flocks. And so he's cooking away from home and that's where this whole thing goes down. If Esau, so think of it, maybe think of it this way. If Esau works hard, Jacob works smart. And look at what verse 30 says. So Esau comes in, he's exhausted, and he says to Jacob, let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. So an exhausted, pooped Esau stumbles in. Uh, It says the, the translation's exhausted, but a better word is like famished. He is, he is on the brink of death, is what he's saying. And I don't know that he's being dramatic. I think it, he's, really, he's really starving, like he needs food. And Jacob sees opportunity. Remember, he's a heel grabber. What does that mean? What is a heel grabber? He's, always, he's coming in from behind to play a trick, to do a setup, to, to get somebody. That's what a heel grabber is, somebody who comes from behind, almost like a backstabber, a trickster. And that's what he is. And so he thinks, oh, there's opportunity here. My brother's in a desperate state. Let me ask him, verse 31, to sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I'm, look at verse 32, I'm about to die. Of what use is the birthright to me? Jacob said, swear to me now. And so he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and drank and rose and went his way. So Jacob sells the birthright. What's, what's a birthright? It was the family inheritance, and it was, it was a big deal for the firstborn. So like if, if there was a family that had five brothers, the inheritance of the family would be split into five portions evenly. Two portions would go to the firstborn, and the remaining three portions would be split between the four brothers after the firstborn. And if, if, if there were only two boys in the family, as is the case here, the, there would be two portions, right? And the firstborn would get double portions. What would that leave for the, the second in line? Zilch. Nothing. So, so this is a big deal. Now, and, 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 and not just uh, flocks and wealth and um, all of that would be passed along, but also there would be a responsibility that would be passed down to the firstborn, that you are now responsible, protector, and the responsible party for this whole family, this whole tribe and clan. It's yours. Okay? Now, but here's the thing. We're talking about Abraham's family, and this family is unique within the whole world because within this family are the promises of God. The promises of God to bring about blessing, not just to this family, but to the whole world through this family. The blessings of God. And notice Esau's indifference to the, to, to the, to the birthright, to the promises of God, to the possibility of the salvation of the world. He's, he's, so, he's, he's being impulsive. His immediate physical need is trumping the future. 
He trades God's favor, God's hand of blessing upon him, God's salvation that he will bring to him and to the world through him. He trades all of that for a bowl of soup. You you know, he doesn't even call it soup. He comes in from the field and he says, give me some of that red stuff. That's what the Hebrew literally, literally says, red stuff. That's what I want. He trades the salvation of the world and the possibility of blessings that will flow throughout it for, red, for, for, for soup, for red soup and bread. And yet, we're, I, I don't know that we're that different, are we? Does our own flesh get in the way of God's blessings and salvation and our desire for those things? I was talking with a pastor not long ago, and he was dealing with um, some marriages that, were in, uh, that had adultery in them, that had been affected by adulterous relationships, and he, he was sort of exasperated and, and said, you know, I'm trying to convince a congregation that what they can't see and what lay in the future is better than what they can see and is right before them. That's my challenge. What we can't see and what lay in the future is better than what we can see and is right before us. That the promises of God are better than the attractive neighbor across the street or the lush home in the better neighborhood or the chocolate cake that's just kind of staring at us from the kitchen. Esau can't imagine that the promises of God are better than the stew he smells. He's so nearsighted. And this is, this is what the life of faith entails. It's waiting. And the challenge is, the call for us is to wait in a world filled with lentil soup. A world filled with attractive aromas. Aromas so attractive that we think to ourselves, I need that or I will die. Give me that. And it's common things, right? Things as common as lentil soup. We allow to overtake our hearts. Substances, power, sex, money. All of those things can pull us away. The the aroma of those things pull us away from the promises of God. Well, Jacob, on the other hand, sees the value in the birthright. So he's got that part good. But I, you know, in my mind, I think Jacob, what he sees are fat goat herds. He's like, I, I can get lots of goats, and I've got an opportunity to get lots of goats. I don't know that Jacob's thinking about the, 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 the salvation part and God's hand on this family. But whatever the case, he's right to see value in the birthright, and he's right to desire it. But the way he goes about getting it is not honoring to God. He's not loving his brother. He's being cold and calculating, and he's exploiting his brother's need. His brother is in a moment, a vulnerable moment, and Jacob's taking advantage, and he hoodwinks Esau in that moment. And so there's our little window into the family of faith. We get a little snapshot into the growing up experience of these two brothers, and there's what we have. Like we said earlier, how odd that it's even written. You know, if you're, if you're going to present your family on Facebook to the world, or you know, 500 
2,000 friends, whatever it is. If you're going to put that forward, you, you put the, the picture with the matching sweaters and the smiles and people holding, embracing each other. You, you take a picture before the meal when it looks nice and perfect. You don't take a picture of a half-eaten muffin or steak. You, pr- you put your best foot forward. And here, again, the family of faith is presenting this very suspect situation. And these family members, the promised one looks like a jerk. And what it highlights, again, is the need for God's grace. That's how we explain, that's how we explain this. The Bible is primarily about God's grace. That's what God's revelation is about. And that is the case here. Grace is op- not just operating in this scene. Grace is governing, overseeing, watching this whole scene unfold. It seems like selfishness is governing it, doesn't it? I mean, Esau's appetite is ruling his decisions. And Jacob's greed for big fat goat herds is, is ruling his willingness to exploit his brother in need. But the, but the truth of the matter is, God's grace is governing it. And through this moment, God's salvific purposes are moving forward. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, here's the deal. We can either get the blessings of God. There's two ways to get God's blessings in our lives. Two ways. One, we can do it through obedience. Okay? Following the law. Fulfilling the requirements of the law. Or, we can get the blessings of God by grace. By grace. We can either walk in the power of the flesh to fulfill the the obligations of the law, or we can, in God's power of the Spirit, receive God's grace and be saved. Those are the two options. But there's really only one option that's available to us. We do not have the ability, the capacity, the strength, the power, even the interest to begin to get the blessings of God through the law. Our sin has put a big fat X through that possibility. No longer an option. The only way for us in, in, in reality to get the blessings of God is through grace. It must be grace. And yet, we often live life as though we could be blessed by God through obedience to the law. So let, let me take a moment to explain what, what life looks like when we follow the law. Look at verse 28 again. We see that Isaac loved Esau. Why did he love Esau? There's a because. And what follows the because? because the reason why Isaac loved Esau is because he ate the fruits of his game. Right? Esau provided good venison sausage and smoked meats and jerky and whatnot, and so Isaac loved him. Now, think about the love that you have for the the love of a spouse or the love of a parent or the love of a friend. Why do they love you? Why do they love you? What do you place in the blank after the because? They love me because blank. What do you put in the blank there? How do you fill in that blank? Why do they love you? Why does your spouse love you? Why does your dad love you? Or your mom love you? Or your sister love you? Or your friend? 
Dad loves me because I'm good at sports. Mom loves me because I make the honor roll every quarter. My wife loves me because I provide financial support to her. My friend loves me because... I'm fun and people have a good time when they're with me and they like me for that. My fans love me because I'm awesome on the court. My followers love me because I'm constantly producing funny, humorous, entertaining content on my feeds. Like, now I'm going to admit, getting that kind of love is, is kind of validating, isn't it? I mean, think about it. Esau probably walked with a swagger in his tent because... His dad loved his game. He was a good hunter. He could, get, he could bring home the, the bacon, like literally. He could bring it home. And Isaac liked that. And that was a source of, of pride, I'm guessing, for Esau. The wife can strut knowing that she's the most beautiful wife. And the star athlete can take pride knowing that, that he's the best on the court. They're loved, right? The, the applause is, is just invigorating that they experience. But what if those things are lost? The beauty fades. The hunting skills fade. The younger athletes come up and they're better and, they, and the athlete gets replaced. See, when we operate, and all of that is operating according to the law. I get love if I behave this certain way, if I fulfill this law the law of beauty or the law of athletic performance or the law of hunting. There's, there's some obligation that we must fulfill to get the love that we want. The gospel works fundamentally differently. Let me, let me ask you a question. Why does God love you? Why does God love you? God loves me because, and what's, what goes in the blank? Paul actually answers that question in Ephesians chapter 2. God's love has, Paul says in that passage, God's love has brought us from death to life. God's love is, it makes it so that he's going to lavish his gifts and graces and favor on us for ages to come. God's love has made us his children, adopted us. We are his workmanship, a temple for God's dwelling. All, God has done all of that. But the, here's the question. Why did God do that? Why does God love you? Paul answers it. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. He says, this is why. This is why God loves you. Because, <clears throat> he loves you because, Ephesians 2, verse 4, because of the great love which, which, with which he loved us. Did you hear that? That's the gospel. He loves you because he loves you. That's what it's saying. Now, I, I, I'm, I'm, I don't want to belabor this point, but I don't know that we can belabor it, so I'm just going to keep going here. It is so ingrained in us to want to perform with a law framework. I get love if I hunt like Esau, or if I look like Clooney, or if I have brains like Einstein, or if I can play like Jordan. And so we bring that law framework to the spiritual matters, right? This is, this is how church people become so intolerable and judgy and difficult to be around. 
Because they're operating out of a law framework. Like, I get, I get the love of God. God loves me because I come to church every week. And I volunteer to prepare the Lord's Supper. And I teach Sunday school, you know, if we had it. And I, I know Reformed theology. And I volunteer at Restore OKC. God loves me because of all those things. So we start to kind of puff ourselves up. That is living according to the law. Okay? That's not an option for us any longer. Here's the gospel. This is what Paul says. God loves you because he loves you. That's why he loves you. That's the best kind of love. That's the kind of love that we all want. We want that from a spouse. We want that from a parent. We want that from a friend. It's unconditional. It's love because the love has been set on you. And you don't have to, you're not riding this roller coaster of performance. And on good days, you feel loved. And on bad days, you feel unloved. That's law. And it's exhausting. Listen to what Martin Luther said. He said, God loves sinners not because they're attractive. There's no attraction in us in our sin. We become attractive because He loves us. When God sets His love on us, His love actually makes us attractive. Our obedience is a fruit of His love towards us. It's not the basis of it. And so God's love has landed on Jacob. We know that from the, from the previous verse. Um, and I want to I continue to kind of drive, you know, the, the, the nail is driven. Let's clinch it, okay? Because we've got uh, Romans chapter, chapter 9. Paul sort of peels back the curtain of creation and shows us what, what God is up to in this whole sibling thing between Jacob and Esau. And it is, um, well, let's just look at it. This is Romans chapter 9. Turn there if you like. I think it would be helpful if you're reading along. Uh, if, you don't, if you have a Bible app, you can look there. Romans chapter 9, verses 11 and following. Okay, so Paul says, Though th- these twins, Jacob and Esau, were not yet born, and they hadn't done anything, good or bad, but in order that God's purpose of election might continue, this is Romans chapter 9, verse 11, not because of works, but because of him who calls Rebecca, verse 12, was told, the older will serve the younger. Esau will serve Jacob. Verse 13, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Look at what it says there. This decision was set before Jacob and Esau even left, exited the womb, before they had done anything good or bad, but that God's purpose of election might continue. Not because of works, not because of anything they did, it's not law, it's because of God's sovereign choice. Now, so what did Jacob do to, to get God's favor and love? Nothing. He didn't do anything. What do do we do to get God's favor and love? Nothing. You may think, well, but wait a sec. 
I remember I was age nine, and I walked, I walked down the aisle to the front, and I said, I want to follow Jesus, and I want to be baptized. You did do that, possibly, hopefully, and that's great. But the reason you did that is because God set his love on you before the foundation of the world. In that moment was a response. God wasn't responding to you walking down the aisle. You were responding to him setting his love on you before the foundation of the world. Now, and you know, when Paul says, we're saved by grace so that there's no boasting. He's removing any little toehold that we might have in our own salvation. I'm saved because I'm sort of open about this gospel thing and I accepted it. Or I'm saved because I've kind of got a long-term perspective and I'm thinking about eternity and I want salvation. Paul's saying, no! You're saved because God's grace landed upon you. There's no room for boasting. Now, a natural question coming out of that is, that doesn't seem fair. Why would God's love land on Jake? Jacob's a schemer, a plotter. He's like, he's kind of the more, Esau's the pitiful one in this. Paul, so Paul asked that question. Well, is this fair? Is this fair of God? Look at what he says, verse uh, 13. I'm sorry, 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? Is God being fair here? He says, by no means. There's no injustice. God is being fair. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Therefore, verse 16, it doesn't depend on human will or exertion. It depends solely on God who has mercy. That is grace. That's grace. His love has landed on you. Jesus, when he spoke to his disciples, do you remember what he said? He said the same thing, but to his disciples, he said, you didn't choose me. I chose you. You're, my, you're here because I chose you. That's grace. And while Jacob is a schemer and a trickster, God's grace not the law, God's grace in Jacob's life is going to transform him. It's going to transform him over the rest of the book of Genesis. We're going to see the transformation of Jacob through all sorts of suffering and difficulty, but God's hand is on him. It was on him before his birth, and it's on him throughout his life, and we don't know why in God's perfect sovereign counsel all-wise counsel. Why? We don't, we don't know. That's not, it's not even explained in Romans 9. But his love is there on Jacob. And this is the heart of the whole Jacob and Esau story. All of Revelation, especially this story of Jacob, highlights the grace of God. Now, it's, it's Christmas season for one last Sunday, we're celebrating and remembering the Christmas season. Remember Jesus coming, the incarnation? The Word became flesh. And what did He come full of? Do you remember what it was? Laws and requirements, judgmental stares, condescending glares. Is that what He came full of? 
There's these Jesus videos, or uh, early in the YouTube days, there were these little Jesus-dubbed videos where this kind of annoying, obnoxious Jesus would walk around, and they dubbed him saying these condescending things to his disciples, and constantly pointing out all their flaws and mistakes and issues. And I, you know, I know what you did last night, Peter. I, remember, I heard you say that. You thought you were saying it under your breath, but I heard it. Is that what Jesus came full of, that kind of stuff? No. He came full. This is what John says. Jesus came full of grace and truth. And we see it here. It looks like selfishness is governing this whole story, but God's grace is governing. And that's the case here. In the world, it's at work. It seems like the world is full of like just a cascade of conflict. Day in and day out, things are falling apart. Relational breakdown, my body's falling apart. All of these things are falling but, the, but you peel back the curtain of creation, God's Spirit is at work. Grace is being poured. And it will one day all be made manifest. It's amazing. And here's the thing. There is real, tangible impact in our lives as a result of this grace. You deal with anxiety. You deal with defensiveness, pride. If you're fearful, this grace of God has a way of dealing with all of those things. God's love and care is upon you. He loves you because He loves you, not because of anything you do. That relieves you of your anxiety and fear. He cares for you. He's going to take care of you. Right? If you're defensive, God's love came to you, and you've been made declared righteous because of His favor and His grace and His mercy. So don't worry if somebody cuts you off on the side of the road or critiques your, your work performance or whatever it may be. Defensiveness. God, God's love came to you not because of anything you did. No toehold for you in your salvation. Pride. Gone. No boasting but in Christ. See, this great, the, the grace of God is amazing. It's terrifying too in some ways, isn't it? Isn't it terrifying at the same time? And for those who don't receive the grace of God, there's a, there's a sense in which they, they do what Esau did. Did you see what he did at the end of the verse 34? What does Esau, how does he feel about God's salvation and his birthright? He despises it. He hates it. He wants nothing to do with it. For those who believe, for those that God has touched, it's amazing. It's amazing grace, how sweet the sound saved a wretch like me. Let's pray. Father, you know, uh, you know my heart. You know that um, while I'm seeing amazing grace, functionally I operate as though the law was governing my life, as though it was not based on grace. And it's tempting to get fussy and sheepish when, when we fail in that mode. Or to get puffed up and judgmental when we succeed. When we feel like we're really crushing the, the spiritual life. Help us to, to sing of your grace. Help us to hear it, to feel it, to taste it, and, and to, to know that your love is on us. And I pray that you would help us to love as a result of that, like you love, to not be calculating like Jacob, 
to not be driven by our guts like Esau and, th- and willingly throw away everything that you offer for a bowl of soup. Forgive us for doing that and help us to live as you call us to live. And thank you that you've even given us, as you've recreated us, you've given us an, an, an ability, the Spirit's power, the power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us and equipping us and enabling us to, to fulfill your law, to, to live as you call us to live. So help us do that. Grab us with your love. Shake us. It's powerful. It's changing the world. And we pray that it would change us this morning. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.